Hello and welcome to PodPod, the podcast all about podcasting for podcasters. I'm Rihanna Dillon and this week I'm joined by Adam Shepard, editor of PodPod, and Reem Makari, PodPod journalist and researcher. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm very excited this week because we're talking to a podcaster that I'm really, really a huge fan Mm. of, Jamie Bartlett, who is an investigative journalist and has written for so many of my favourite shows, including The Missing Crypto Queen, A Very British Cult, and his most recent one, which only just dropped last week, Believe in Magic. Mm. So we're going to be putting a lot of questions to him. But apart from that, what's been going on in the world of podcasting this week? Reem? We've just had the IAB podcast Upfront, which is an annual podcast advertising summit held by the Interactive Advertising Bureau. And it's basically a bunch of different audio powerhouses coming together and doing short presentations, talking about the shows that they have and how many numbers they're getting and how much they're succeeding. And there's also a bunch of new, exciting podcast launches that were announced. And one of them was by Wondery. And it's the second or I think second collaboration between them and Bloomberg for a new podcast. Mm. That's a true crime investigative podcast. So it's about the collapse of FTX, which is a crypto exchange, and the founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. So it's actually sort of spiritually linked to the missing crypto queen in some areas. But it was a huge scandal last year. And it'll be interesting to get a peek behind the curtain because they've got a lot of first-hand interviews with Bankman-Fried from before everything collapsed. Do you think it's going to be as engaging as the Missing Crypto Queen? <laughs> oh, difficult to say. I think the Missing Crypto Queen had this wonderful air of mystery about it. And, you know, mm. to this day, we still, still, yes, we still don't <laughs> know the, the full story. Whereas Bankman Freed has not gone on the run. He is uh, currently under house arrest. And we know most of what transpired with the, the FTX collapse in terms of the the sort of broad strokes. So what kind of made this podcast launch stand out, Reem? Because you're you know you're you're pulling it out as something quite big in the world of podcasting. So why is this such a big deal? I think it continues the trend of more and more investigative journalism podcasts coming out, which is what we're exploring in today's episode mm-hmm. anyway. It's kind of an evolving from true crime like one-off stories and going more into in-depth, really long stories that are ongoing, that that have a lot of different voices in it. Cases like The Missing Crypto Queen kind of updated even as mm-hmm. the podcast is going on, rather than like going back to a story that's already been resolved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people are interested is because they're following the story along as it's going and they're getting really investigated, uh, sorry, Really invested in the story with, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> with the journalists and engaging with the community. And I think, yeah, it's just like that's following on the trend. And I think that's why it was really interesting standout from the launches at the IAB. And I guess we've talked about on the podcast before about how there is a bit of fatigue, I think, with podcasts that are true crime, Mm. which seem to primarily deal with violence against women in some form or murder or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so actually there's this element of you can still have that investigative, what happened, you sort of feel thrust into the middle of a story with the same sort of pace, but actually it's less about an, an individual's 
kind of violence or being yeah. victimized in quite the same way. And they put on the effort as well with investigative podcasts to actually go and get the voices of people who have been involved. Like they mm. get the voices of the families in it. They get the voices of people who've worked on the case. They've got the voices of people who've been researching rather than just it being the voices of the hosts retelling a story that's already happened. Like that's like a unique angle of investigative podcasts as well. Adam, we're obviously going to be talking to Jamie Bartlett about all of his podcasts and about investigative journalism generally. Mm. I know that you were a huge fan of Believe in Magic, which, as we said, dropped last week. We've both binged it all. And it's the story of teenage charity campaigner Megan Barry, her mother Jean, and the charity that they set up. And then this sort of weird, complex web of manipulation behind it all. So just before we go into our interview, why did you love it so much? Why do you think this is such a well done podcast? Podcast. Well, just because it's a really well put together podcast, you know, the narrative of the show is structured in a very compelling way, you know, and we talk to, to Jamie a lot about the structure of stories like this and how you parcel out the information and the sort of reveals, I guess, in a way that is kind of true, true to the investigation, but also you know, narratively satisfying and Believe in Magic, I think, does that very, very well. Uh, for anyone that hasn't uh, done what I did and binged the entire thing over the course of about 48 hours, we don't go into any details of the podcast, so there's no spoilers here. No. Uh, and I would highly encourage anyone to go and listen to it because it is a fascinating story and goes in a lot of very unexpected directions. I think you can find them all on BBC Sounds. And if you're listening through another podcasting app like Apple Podcasts, you will only get one episode at a time. BBC Sounds has got the whole lot right there. So let's get into our interview then. Here is Jamie Bartlett talking all about investigative journalism. Jamie Bartlett, welcome to PodPod. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you on. You have covered so many topics in your career. I mean, generally, even before podcasting, but with the launch of podcasting, it feels like you have really used it to your benefit. And I guess the big one, the one at least where I kind of first realized just what an exciting area this was, was with the Missing Crypto Queen. And that was a podcast that I remember where I was when I was listening to it. You know, it's one of those podcasts. Oh, blimey. <laughs> um, so tell us about the launch of that. Why was that story so kind of suited to podcasting, first of all? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer and I, and I think I'm actually better at writing podcasts than writing books, which mm. maybe because when you're writing books, you're competing with William Shakespeare. And when you're writing podcasts, hardly <laughs> anyone's done one. So you, you, <laughs> you can be quite original and new and feel like you're top of your game. And it's in a way that with <laughs> writing, it's so busy. So has so many brilliant people doing it that you just get swallowed up and you disappear. The Missing Crypto Queen came about, it was a bit of a strange one. I think the BBC were, at the time, looking for a story that was about crypto, that got ordinary people interested in crypto and some of the risks of crypto, part of the sort of educational side of things, but in a compelling and interesting way, because there's a lot of crypto podcasts out there and a lot of people investing in crypto. But most of the crypto podcasts are quite technical. They're quite boring. They're by people who love crypto. Georgia Cat, the producer of The Crypto Queen, sort of had 
done a little bit of digging around and just got in touch with me and said this really crazy story about I was basically pitched this one coin at a dinner party and I started looking into it and it just seems like the woman's gone on the run. It's really weird. Do you fancy like we could make something fun trying to find her? And it was quite lighthearted almost at the beginning. I had no idea how big it was as a scam or how maybe dangerous it was in terms of who was involved. But we both had the sense that just a little bit even of internet research, that there, there were lots of sides to the story. When you're looking for a good podcast, what you're trying to find is, as you guys will know very well, a, a way to explore different worlds on your journey. So you've got the journey running through the podcast, trying to find Dr. Rujrik Nativa. But you're thinking, can I also bring in the world of money laundering, the world of multi-level marketing, the world of technological hype? You're trying to think... There's a story, but there's so many bits to this story that we can digress and, and explore. And it was very obvious with that story, there would be a lot of that because you have to sustain several episodes of a podcast and they have to all be slightly different and they have to all be quite compelling in themselves. And it felt quite quickly that the crypto queen had it. The thing that made, I think, people really loved it you must have heard all the American podcasts that come out, all the biggies, all the famous ones, and they're all like cliffhangers at the end of each episode. But usually they've all been made months ago. Mm. So mm. the story's already done. Our, the Crypto Queen was not, we were literally making it up week by week. <laughs> we didn't know how it was going to end. We did not know. It was so nerve-wracking. Yeah, We'd done a couple of the episodes, but episode four goes out, Episode five's not finished. We don't, we've got to make one in a week. We don't quite know where it's going to mm -hmm. take us. That was high risk, but it was worth the risk because I don't think you can fake that level of suspense. I think it was obvious that we didn't know what the hell we were doing or where we were going. People really liked that. Yeah. That's why I think that got the pickup and the excitement probably more than even any of the other ones I've ever been involved in. Mm. That's something that I want to touch on a little bit, actually. In terms of investigative journalism, your podcast so far, particularly The Missing Crypto Queen and your latest work, Believe in Magic, they've all been extremely in-depth pieces in terms of research and interviews and all of that supporting work. What kind of timeframes do you generally try and work with? Do you intentionally go in... I guess, knowing as little as possible so that you can discover the narrative organically. Yeah, I go in being a complete idiot. In fact, I refuse <laughs> any reading or even look at the subject. <laughs> <laughs> there is benefit in being slightly ignorant to subjects because you do hopefully then ask the question that the audience has in their mind mm. and kind of mm. pops out of your mouth. What do you mean by that? Mm. As a journalist, I suppose, your dream is to be given the chance to work on a long story. Everyone wants to do it mm. because for most journalists, you're working on a quick turnaround, one day, six hours, maybe a week. Mm. And I've been so lucky that I've been able to do like Crypto Queen took us a year, but we're still doing it. So four years, but mm -hmm. off and on. Mm. Believe in Magic was a year or more. A Very British Cult, which I wrote, was over a year. So very, very fortunate to do that. One of the things, though, in investigations, when you're doing them at that sort of length, a lot of your key discoveries, like pivotal moments, 
crucial events that take place to help you unpick the story are actually quite boring. Uh, it will be, it's not a, a sighting in an Athens restaurant like we got for Crypto Queen. It's someone emails you a document and it's like, right, well, how am I going to make a, a scene of this? Because it's so pivotal to the story. Just saying I've got an email is not sometimes enough. So one of the one of the key things when you're making these long ones, and there's going to be a lot of pivotal moments, is you're really trying to capture the emotion of a moment when something big happens. So you do a lot of recording of conversations and discussions and mm. things that you find out along the way. And you never you're gonna only ever use 0.5 of a percentage of those. But you've got to sort of kind of capture all these key moments. And then work out how do we turn it into a story that makes sense for people. With that, I noticed that, especially with the last podcast where you're talking to producers and with a very British cult as well, there, there are kind of constant conversations which feel like very like behind the scenes. So when do you know when to turn the mic on? Do you just record every single conversation that you have with everyone involved in this story and then afterwards figure out which were the pertinent ones? Or mm. do you say to each other, turn on your mic now because this is going to be an important phone call? I'm not going to give away all my trade secrets, but <laughs> there aren't any secrets. I mean, there are things you can't, there are sometimes things you can't record. Like when you're in a courtroom, you're not allowed to record. So you, I think your default generally with podcasting, because you are fortunate that it's quite cheap to record, you can have a handheld Zoom mic, take it around with you. And it doesn't, it's not much to just record with TV Oh, the hiring TV crews and sound mm. things. It's just a pain. So with, when I've made TV, every scene is really carefully constructed and every interview is carefully planned. With podcasting, it's the opposite. You can just generate loads of material and then work it out. So it's usually about when do you turn the mic off? Because <laughs> usually you want it on, you just want it on running. Mm. There are, however, times where, you know, like let's say, for example, the producer receives a really important email and they want to capture the emotion of telling the presenter what was in that email because it's a key moment. And so they might phone ahead and say, answer your phone in the next two minutes. I'm going to phone you. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but answer the phone and I'll be recording. So get ready. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of there, you're creating a scene almost. It's, it's not fake, but you're just making sure everyone's ready and you're going to record it. And obviously with podcasts, when I say just you're always recording, you don't secretly record people because you mm. can't do that. You've got it very, very strict rules about secret recording. So I'm, I'm talking here about amongst ourselves and our discussions and stuff. Mm. And then legal, yeah. and you've got these legal things. You don't want to record everything because there are times when you have really, really boring meetings and you know it's not going to be of any interest whatsoever and people might get nervous if they know they're being recorded. So I, I'll take it back. You don't record everything, but... You just have a bias to recording more than less when you're doing these podcasts. can be annoying for the producer because they then have to sit and listen to a load of absolute rubbish <laughs> chit-chat to <laughs> try and find those little key moments. I just want to quickly go back to something that you touched on earlier around getting to work on a much sort of longer form story. Whereas a lot of journalists, most journalists, in fact, tend to work on quite quick turnaround stuff. Newsrooms up and down the country have been hit, I think, pretty hard by continuing budget cuts over the past several years. 
Do you think that podcasting has made this kind of long-form investigative journalism more viable for publishers and for organizations than it would have been in, say, a print format? There's a lot of ways to answer that. If you're talking about the sort of finances of it, there's a whole other show I'm sure you've done about how, how the sort of the podcast world is financed and whether it's actually able to wash its own hands and can actually pay for these kinds of investigations because that's a different discussion. Mm. But it seems like it's created more of an appetite for that kind of investigation. I think it has. I think, but the thing is they are expensive. Mm. It's a long project. You, it's a lot of time. It can be a lot of people. Yes, it's not big camera crews all the time. It's cheaper to make for the amount of minutes you get than TV. But if you're on a year working on it and you've got a producer and a presenter and you, then you've got to bring a sound engineer in and you, all these other things, mm. music, it can end up being quite expensive. Uh, and I think what you'll find is more and more places will be looking to combine products. So the big TV documentary will have an accompanying podcast with mm. it and it will also then have a long read article with it. And I think more and more of the production companies are obviously thinking will we sell the intellectual property so it can be turned into a documentary and a drama and a movie mm. and i think for a lot of production companies there's some some are calling themselves ip incubators we're mm. actually finding stories we can fund them because they're long and tricky because we think we can then sell the ip to cover costs and obviously make some profit. We were talking to the uh, co-founder of Blanchard House about that a couple of episodes back. And yeah, it's a really interesting approach to sort of funding models. It really is. And it's one way that long form, very complicated investigations can be funded because we've got to find ways to fund them because good journalism is expensive and takes time. Mm. So we need funding models. And I think at the moment, this is the sort of driving seat, other than public service broadcasting, this is the sort of driving seat for, for funding that. However, this is the risk. I'm not saying this undermines it in, entirely, but this is the risk. People start writing podcasts for Netflix. Mm. They think, oh, mm. I, I've got to focus so much on character arc. Mm. I, I've got to, there's got to be the hero's journey. I've got to, and sometimes the story isn't like that. So the risk will be we constantly try and write our, our news investigations with one eye on exploitation of intellectual property for a movie. Mm. And then, this, then the news starts. Because do you remember everyone was complaining about the crown? Well, not everyone. There was a bit of a, a bit of a hoo-ha about the crown and whether it was a true, you know, is it, is it a fair? presentation uh -huh. people being misled mm. that could happen that could happen with investigations as well where it's kind of drama it's kind of not it's sort of based on a true story not really and so i think that's one thing we just need to keep our our eyes on whether this funding model does actually have a bit of a corrupting influence on how the stories are being presented and i'm i'm mindful of that because i'm someone that's now making these and i'm always thinking oh man am i I've got to make sure I don't try to make this too dramatic because mm. I know it would be a good drama story. So it's really important that we try to keep that in mind as we're, as we're thinking about this new funding model.
And in terms of your roles, you seem to have multiple roles that you play with different podcasts that you are involved with, because you're talking about writing a podcast. Obviously, we know your voice, you're a presenter as well, but you're sometimes you're not necessarily a lead voice, like Catherine Nye for A Very British Cult is the lead voice. But as you said, you're a writer on that. So can you talk us through those different roles and what it actually means for you? Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, I... I I, I, like I said at the beginning, I think I'm probably better at writing podcasts than I am at writing books. And because I, my background is writing, not presenting, it feels like presenting is almost a secondary thing. Like to me, the Crypto Queen as well, I was, I was as much the writer of it as the presenter. So I, I sort of realized I don't need to be the presenter. I don't need to try to present everything. I, I could maybe do a much better job if I could just focus on writing the story. And Catherine Nye is a better presenter than me. She's more experienced than me. And as you'd have seen when she did the doorstepping of Paul War at the end of A Very British Cult, I could not have done it that well. No chance. She was great. Brilliant. And I would have been so nervous. I mean, I get quite nervous with interviews. I don't really like it. I get so worried about, I, I just don't particularly enjoy the confrontation of it, very mm. nervous beforehand. And what I do enjoy is working out how to get to the bottom of the story and writing the story. So uh, maybe I should sort of take more of a back seat and just do more writing. I, I realised with The Very British Cult, I got as much joy out of, seeing it as when I'm presenting, but without all the stress. <laughs> people like my voice or not. I mean, I remember with the Missing Crypto Queen, the Guardian said they didn't like my voice. I had like an annoying voice. That's rude. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that stuff when you're behind the scenes. <laughs> but in terms of writing and producing, you know, what do you see? Because once upon a time, that would have been a, the same role. Yes. So what are the differences in the way that you work between writing, producing and presenting? Yeah, it's... This is going out to a, a, a specialist audience, isn't it? Because to even ask that question assumes a knowledge of what producing is, which frankly, before I got it, I had no idea what producer did. <laughs> well, I guess it's so different, isn't it? Because I work in radio. It's different in podcasts from that. It's different in television. It is. And the producer increasingly in podcasts is part of the story rather than yeah. behind, totally behind the scenes. And I used to... I used to literally think that the presenter just did everything. Phoning up all these people, organizing interviews. And I now realize that's not really what happens. But with Crypto Queen and Believe in Magic, I think the roles were especially blurred because it was a small team. But everyone's doing everything in a sense. A very British cop, because it was a TV show as well, allowed for a bit more division of labor, if you like. And producers will often will often write a lot of the scripts. But but because I come from a background of being a writer, I can write this stuff better than most producers. So with Crypto Queen, that's why we divvied the roles up so much. Uh, so I was writing it with Georgia and with the same with Believe in Magic. I was writing it with, with Ruth. But Believe in Magic was in some ways a bigger project so I was able to just focus on the writing because there was another producer doing stuff. I didn't work on it for as long. So I, my role was more coming in as the writer of the story, mm. which I think was quite a good way of doing it because I hope you can, well, I, no, it would sound too arrogant to say um, you can see it's good quality writing. 
But mm. I think because podcasts are so important to keep people listening, and you're, you're asking a lot of people's time, the writing has to be very, very good to keep people engaged for three, four, five hours, maybe even in one go. Mm. So I think podcasts deserve sort of specialist writers to be able to do that. Mm. But also, you know, just going back to one of your previous points as well, you need to balance that good writing, that engaging writing with making sure that you're not putting too much mustard on certain elements of the story to create a better kind of narrative arc and treading that line where you're approaching stories responsibly, but also writing them in an engaging way without kind of keeping too much of a thumb on the scales, I think is a really delicate art. And one of the things that we've seen a lot in sort of the overlap between podcasting and investigative storytelling, if you like, is the rise of sort of amateur kind of investigators, often under the umbrella of true crime, but people mm. getting into it without necessarily having a journalistic background or any kind of formal training. Do you think that that's a risk for this kind of content? It's a tough question. I mean, the three investigative podcasts I've, I've been involved in were all BBC productions in the end. So mm. you have a big team of people around you making sure you're not putting too much mustard on because they will tell you about it pretty quickly. I think in terms of, and I don't want to sort of go on about how brilliant the BBC is, but in terms of that specific risk of trying to create a compelling podcast and crossing the line to make it too exciting, the BBC is a good place to not let you do that. There's so many checks to stop that from happening that a lot of people don't even know about, but that mm. do exist. The rise of the amateur investigator or the amateur, the amateur sleuth or whatever, it's really hard because actually in the story of Believe in Magic and in the story of The Missing Crypto Queen, and you wouldn't know this from the podcast, but it is in the book I wrote about The Missing Crypto Queen, it was a group of amateurs who basically solved the crime and who figured out that one coin was a scam and who went to the authorities well the authorities came to their website and found loads of information that helped them bring it all down now they made mistakes on their site as well but they were able to capture material that was so useful for law enforcement later on and i don't think the scam would have collapsed in the way it did without this bunch of amateur investigators so there are risks there are big risks but when you get a large group of dedicated people willing to spend incredible amounts of time trying to get to the bottom of a story, you, they can solve things you'd never, and you get all different people with different skill sets doing different mm. things. I'm not saying they should then go and arrest these people with citizens, you know, citizens arrest, but it, it is useful for the authorities to find them. Now, as from them making podcasts and wrongly accusing people and stuff, yeah, a whole nother set of problems. Yeah. But, because I yeah. could I could see a world in which the sleuths, as they're dubbed in Believe in Magic, rather than kind of taking the course that they did, essentially trying to do their own podcast, revealing their findings. And I don't know if things would have turned out the same way if they had done that. Well, yeah, who knows? What I could say is that it, for 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 journalists who then hopefully have the sort of high level of professional knowledge and integrity in the, in it, 
telling the story of the way that amateur investigators operate is a, is a, is a really good part of getting a story out there. Can we talk about the structure, how you decide to structure a podcast in terms of your writing? Because The Missing Crypto Queen is this like quite chronological, epic storytelling, which is kind of, as you say, ongoing. And sometimes I keep hoping that another episode is going to pop in my feed because it's still an unfinished well, story. It will. It will. Yeah, good. It will. Good. But we're working on it. <laughs> Whereas Believe in Magic, the episodes, it's about what are we going to talk about today? And it's not necessarily quite in the same chronological order. You know, we have an episode that's around One Direction. We have an episode around Gene. So how do you decide how a particular story lends itself to what particular way of telling it? I'm not sure I've made enough to, to have a, 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 a really clear approach. And this is why... I think podcasting at the moment is an exciting genre to be in because there isn't an agreed approach. There isn't an agreed standard. You feel like you can always experiment and try and work things out. The number one thing when you're doing the investigative stuff is, of course, you've got to get the story right. Everything else is meaningless. You can try and develop characters, but if the story's wrong or you haven't got it or figured it out or done all the proper research and journalism behind it, you've got nothing. So that is always the, the central and first question. What else could I say? A structure is everything. People think writing is mostly about nice words strung together, and that is the last <laughs> thing you do. You know this. The structure <laughs> it's a logic, it's a pattern of logic. X follows from Y. And when we learn about Y, it takes us to Z. And then we've learned something with Z, so now we're at A again you have to work out what the logic is. And people often spend too long writing the words and not enough time working out the logical structure uh, because people drift off and get bored, not because th when they think the words are boring, but because when things stop making sense or follow in a logical pattern, mm. working out a structure, a logical coherent structure as to why am I moving on to this bit now and now this bit is, is the key. I spend so long trying to figure that out you never get it right first time. You are constantly changing it, you know, really sometimes up until the last minute. That's why there's no approach. There's no single mm. sort of storytelling, you know, system that I could think of that I've ever applied. So how does that work then with production processes like The Missing Crypto Queen, where you're sort of writing and producing it from a week-to-week basis because presumably that doesn't well no lessons from that that was just complete mayhem that was <laughs> it was like 20 hours a day seven days a week up until 10 seconds before it was about to be published i mean it was <laughs> i wouldn't try and <laughs> don't try this at home kids kind of it was not the way you'd probably normally go about it you can get over a lot of problems if you just churn out the hours you know, and, and and if I were to sort of have finished the whole story of Crypto Queen and now go back and rewrite it, you'd probably do it quite differently. You'd have all different systems and a different order. But the sum of the magic of it was that chaos. Not that I would ever compare The Missing Crypto Queen to early Rolling Stones albums because they're not <laughs> quite that level. They're not perfectly produced. There's little mistakes in them everywhere. Mm. But that was part of it. And I, and I feel like Crypto Queen was a bit like that. You know, we did, there were mistakes and there maybe was too much music. Georgia was saying to me the other day, 
I listened to some of it. I think I put in too much music and it was partly because we were just so in it. And we, if I did it again, <laughs> I'd definitely do the music different this time. Hmm. So yeah, don't, um, don't attempt to draw lessons from how that one was made. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people complained about Mick Jagger's voice in the early days as well. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No more comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were saying that you find it quite intimidating doing the interviews or door stopping people. Do you find that people are actually more receptive to being interviewed for a podcast than they might for more traditional media? Because it's still quite, it's still quite young. It's still quite new. It's still quite exciting. Everyone who you interview for anything when you're doing media has a reason to do it. And you've sometimes got to try and figure out what that reason is. Some people might be doing it for quite selfish reasons and they might want a big TV camera there. They want themselves out there. They've got a reason to want to be public and widely known and understood. And then a podcast maybe doesn't work for them. and They'd rather it be a big camera crew. On sensitive issues where people are a bit more hesitant, I think not having a camera there just is is better. It just it, people are mm. quicker to forget that they're like you're you know here like look into the camera and talk, and yeah. so people tend to be a bit more natural, a bit more relaxed. They don't feel as exposed because they don't think their face is going to be all over the screen. And it's quicker. Sometimes people will say, "I'm available in half an hour," mm. and you think, "Well, all I need is my Zoom. Ca- I can just go now." But if it's like, well, are you available in two weeks? I've got to order a camera crew, find a location, da 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 da, da. Uh, so, so, so generally, yeah, I think it's easier in terms of what you call access when it comes to a podcast rather than a TV thing, but that's not true for everyone. And do you have like a particular get, a particular person that you found or happened upon who gave you an interview that you were just like, that was really unexpected and it really changed the story. Oh, God, yeah, loads, all the time. I don't even think I can give you a single example. Although we haven't found Dr. Ruja Ignatova, so there is still that one. <laughs> That's mm. true. Yeah, constantly. Every interview changes the story a little bit. I see it as more of sort of degrees of how it can change your approach and what you're understanding and what you're thinking, and it builds up over time. And I think you take something from each interview. Like, I never want to go into an interview thinking, I need to get this line and I need to get that line. It's more hopefully like, well, let's see what this person's going to say. Let's try and figure it out. Because if you're trying to make a podcast where you're partly trying to learn about something as you go, you don't fake it. I mean, you want to go in there and learn and be genuinely inquisitive about stuff. Mm. Without wishing to spoil too much, the uh, interview that forms the central core of episode five of Believe in Magic is, I think, one that felt like it really added a lot to the story and kind of changed it quite significantly. I'm like now going on my podcast app trying to find out which one was episode five. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was a powerful interview. Yeah. And I think even after it, Ruth and I were discussing like that, that was really genuinely we did learn something there and um Mm. i think it's i think it's good if you can do interviews where you you genuinely do learn something you genuinely do you can't fake emotional reactions to things it's very hard if you're not an actor it's very hard to fake that Mm. and it's quite important for audio to have that sort of emotional reaction to things and good interviews hopefully give not just the listener but the person doing the interviews will have the same thing. 
that was exactly the episode that I was just about to mention as uh, being a real wow moment as well. You mentioned there that Ruth, your producer, did a lot of the interviews with you. How much of a role does the producer's training and experience in terms of investigation and perhaps more of that sort of journalistic or journalism adjacent background, how much of a role does that play in helping to get stuff like this successfully over the line? Well, you're a team. Some pod, I think when there are podcasts where the presenter is a celebrity, the producer is doing everything. Because <laughs> <to be laughs> of my background, I happen to be able to do that work as well. Um, producers generally just don't get enough credit full stop. Mm. They just don't do. It's, um, I, 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 I can imagine it must be infuriating sometimes for producers when they, when they see presenters. So like, yeah, so I discovered this, that, and the other, and the producers. <laughs> so it's just really, I've always, I've always, I've tried where it works as well and where everyone's happy just to make sure that the producers are really in, in the story. And it's, it's useful as well because sometimes when you're presenting it, you, you sort of need someone to bounce ideas off that you recall. Mm. Like, what are your reflections on this? That's nicer in a conversation than just musing on your own. So having mm. a producer who's also a character who's giving you bits of information, who's listening and chatting about what we've just seen with you, is, just, is, is also quite handy as a way to get, get, get ideas out there. But yeah, go producers. They do deserve a lot more credit than they than they, and they're <laughs> crucial. I mean, they're absolutely crucial, and a lot, a lot mm. of the time they're also doing the not such nice jobs, mm. the boring jobs, the difficult jobs. Having there's to get on the phone do. for four hours a day. There's just there's a lot of difficult, boring stuff to do to make good podcasts, and producers have to do most of that. Thinking about comparing podcasting with more traditional written media say with newspapers for example so does like a, a new podcast episode dropping into someone's feed spark more interest than a written article update have you sort of noticed a difference with that oh i've never even thought about that no i've never even thought about that the only thing that i could say of any interest that makes a podcast i think different when you're doing the long form investigation type i don't even know what the word for it is the sort of the single series episodic store what mm -hmm. story I, I think people feel a lot sort of closer to you they feel invested in the story they're invested because they're thinking about it themselves they're wondering what's happening so they're trying to work out in their mind what might be going on here so they're, they're putting their own intellectual effort into your story and they're hearing you and your voice in their ears sometimes like late at night sometimes for two or three hours at a time and you're you know you feel like you come to know the person and I have been surprised by the way people have approached me in the streets sometimes, like they're my best friend. <laughs> it never happened. Mm. And there's sometimes even been a bit of frustration out there about why is the Crypto Queen story not delivered me more episodes yet? <laughs> um, why haven't you found her? Every time I tweet or do something... There's always someone saying, what on earth are you doing? Get back on that crypto queen story. What's happened? And um, I can't explain the full reasoning. You'll understand one day soon. Um, like, because they feel like it's their story as well. Like mm. I, I've put 
six hours of my life into this. You can't just walk away from it. What's going on? I own the story. It's not just your story, Jamie. It's our story together. Carry on. Um, So I think there's a lot more uh, emotional connection to the story and the presenter, Mm. which is a weird thing. It's a strange thing. It's a good thing. I feel grateful that that happens. I feel very privileged for that to happen. But sometimes I feel a bit of pressure because I know people are sort of relying and expecting when I, and it's hard always to deliver. Mm. I mean, some of it's out of your hands. A lot of it's out of my hands. <laughs> I guess that ties into how much you put of yourself into your investigation, into your reporting. Yeah. How much do you consider of what is your opinion, your feelings, you know, your emotions compared to what is fact? Whereas I guess in news written articles, we get less emotion, I suppose. Yeah, and I think one thing that really does matter with these if you're going to spend four hours with someone you you've got to quite like them you've got to so you've got to quite get to know them a little bit or something about Mm. them or you just need to feel like you know what they're about if you're going to dedicate that long with them Mm. so you i think you you have to put something of yourself out there you don't want to make it all about you at all but people need to sort of know you a little bit so they feel like you're a good person to hang out with essentially for x hours a day yeah, and so that's that's difficult sometimes because you don't want to just you've got to sort of do that in quite a natural way as well. You you've got to again you you can't sort of oh hi everyone it's me. Did you know that when I was twelve years old I blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's got to somehow be a natural way of developing you as a character, mm. and that's a, that's a really hard thing to do actually. Yeah when you guys are in a car, that always feels like when you're maybe at your most vulnerable or your most like or your least presentary mode. And that's when I feel like I'm really listening in to you just being you. Well, here's a tip that I learned from another journalist a long time ago. I was making a TV show and he said, try to avoid doing sit down interviews with people because it's obvious it's an interview. Mm. Go for a walk and interview them on a walk. Uh, Go Mm. and play golf and interview them on the golf course because they will relax and open up and it will be natural. He, he was always looking for ways of like, let's, there was one time when I was doing a sit down interview and he just said, and he's sort of whispering and he's sort of like, let's go for a walk, let's go for a walk, carry this on. So he somehow managed to do it. So we sort of went for a little walk around the, I said, mm-hmm. we have a tour of the office and did most of the interview touring around an office. Right. It was way fantastic. better. Yeah. So um, that's a little tip. If you can get some motion and some movement. Mm-hmm. Mm you know it's a nice little tidbit as you say we've got people who listen who might be wanting to do their own sort of launch of this kind of thing so have you got any other bits of advice that you can offer to podcasters who might not have your level of experience but are looking to get into this sort of field i think you can experiment with the genre still don't listen to a podcast and think oh it has to be like the lazarus heist or it has to be like uh the shimaima begum podcast it's still such an emerging genre that you can really make your own style of one. Make sure you develop yourself as a character. It really, it really does matter. Focus heavily on structure and how far the story uh, says up to me anyway. It says something about the bigger world, like the wider, the wider world. It's not just about the single story you're on. You're always looking to 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 say something much bigger. That's it, really. A lot of the basics are the same. You've got to get the story right. That comes first. 
and then worry about how to tell the story afterwards because with no story you've got nothing and yeah a lot i mean a lot of hard work music can go a really long way but when i write books what i find is it's, it they have to be comprehensive the listener expects every single detail podcasts allow you to to be more open about your uncertainties and your questions and things like that and 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 you can that can be an advantage when you're trying to show how you're arriving at conclusions God, I mean, there's so many things to say, but there's just a few. That's perfect. Jamie Bartlett, thank you so much for joining us on PodPod. It's been a real pleasure listening to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was great talking to you. That was Jamie Bartlett. And I have to say, so one of the big things for me was just about the idea of writing a podcast generally. I sort of feel like that's not something that we've discussed much or covered much in terms of non-fiction podcasting. Mm. And of course, you do need to structure, you do need to write a podcast in the same way that you would write a news report. But just the idea of it being written almost like a drama kind of threw me. I was really surprised by that. But it makes complete sense. Uh, Reem, you weren't on the interview, but you were listening in. What did you think? There is a part in the interview where he mentioned the fact that with investigative journalism, sometimes some of the most boring things are the most interesting part of the story, like getting a document. And that's when the writing comes in because half of it, half of the appeal is the storytelling aspect and being able to creatively get the audience to come to that journey with you. And it's making those little parts of the investigation seem like such a big deal. Mm. The most interesting part for me was the fact that for the missing crypto queen, he was doing the podcast as he was going through the investigation. So he had no idea where it was headed. That really reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen Only Murders in the Building, but that's like a true crime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like based on true crime podcasting. And the appeal of it was the fact that they were solving an investigation as they were going on, not knowing where it's Mm going to lead. And I, I think that's just a very unique aspect of the show because sometimes it is about taking a risk. And again, like the storytelling and then just kind of taking the audience with you and hoping that you're going to have something at the end of it, although we're still waiting for Miss Crypto Queen. <laughs> <laughs> although apparently there will be an episode dropping in our feed soon and I mm. cannot wait. <laughs> Adam, what about you? You know, there was so much to kind of talk about, so much to delve into. There must have been some real standout moments for you. One of the really interesting things for me was the fact that he was saying that he doesn't really feel as confident presenting as he does with writing, which I was really surprised by because he comes across as a very natural presenter. I think paradoxically that slight lack of complete comfortableness is one of the things that makes the missing crypto queen and believe in magic in particular so compelling. I mean, the writing obviously plays a, a big part of it, but it feels very organic and mm. very kind of... It's endearing. Yeah. And I think that if Bartlett was completely confident with the the presenting and the sort of interview side of things, I don't know if it'd have that in the same way. It's It's got just a slight edge of roughness to it in, in some ways. <laughs> Yeah. And again, you know, he he mentioned that the missing crypto queen production wise was very sort of seat of the pants in terms of how it was put together. And in a in a similar way, I think that really helps 
just get that authenticity and bring that across, which, you know, as we all know, is one of the, the real benefits of podcasting and one of the real foundational elements of good audience engagement is where you have that authenticity. Yeah, that's such a good point because you're not listening to a news anchor mm. delivering this report about this woman. You are listening to people who have made this their lives for the past, well, I guess it was the past year or so when he was putting the podcast out regularly, but as he said, four years mm. because it's still an ongoing thing. And so it, you do have to have so much of a, a personal element because it is personal. This is somebody's career that they're putting into this story rather than just, uh, oh, tonight we're looking at... Mm. It's not amateurish in any way, but I know what you mean about it just being a little bit more kind of rough and ready. It's very engaging. So there we go. Jamie Bartlett, investigative journalism and how that really, really works in podcasting, as we can all attest to. All of his podcasts available on BBC Sounds and I'm sure wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much to Adam and Reem for joining me this week. And you can find out so much more on podpod.com. Reem has written loads and loads of articles about podcasting generally, what's going on in the news with podcasts. And you can read all about the launch of Believe in Magic on podpod.com too. Follow us on socials at podpodofficial and please do rate and subscribe us because those five stars really, really help our ego and it would be (laughs) nice to see some more the podcast is produced by emma caution for haymarket business media emma we love you you're a brilliant producer just giving producers their props (laughs) as they deserve i've been your host rihanna dillon and we'll see you next week bye Bye.